That said, would you join me in your copy of God's Word in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, as we continue in this sermon series called Faith, uh, What Faith Does. Today we see in these verses that what faith does is that faith, faith in Christ, genuine faith, genuine Christians, obey the Word. Faith works itself out in what we do, specifically in how we obey God's Word. Last week I uh, had up with me a uh, one of my favorite old manual typewriters that I've kind of restored and got working, and this week I was going to bring another one up with me to make another illustration, but this one is not so portable. It is a 1990 IBM Wheelrider 15 Series 2, and uh, that doesn't mean a whole lot to many of you, but it's an electronic typewriter, and so uh, the, it, just, it being electronic, the keystrokes are a lot easier. Different from uh, what many of you may know as the IBM Selectric, which had that cool type ball in the middle that spun around at about the speed of light to uh, type what you want. The IBM Wheelrider has a cartridge that you can take out and put in uh, with different size fonts and other things. But the really great thing about the IBM Wheelrider 15 Series 2 that I have in my office is uh, that it comes with a sort of rudimentary computer chip. And with that, it has memory. And the memory in the computer chip allows me to do some really fun things with that typewriter, like center text on a page automatically. For those of you that had to learn how to do how to center text on a page using math and like a slide rule, I don't know. It's super frustrating to center text on a page with a typewriter, but not with the IBM uh, Wheelrider 15 Series 2. It'll do it for you. It'll type in bold. It has all sorts of different like uh, micro adjustments that you can make. You can move the paper up and down on the platen, like uh, 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 spaces in between a normal space. So you can do all kinds of crazy stuff with this typewriter. But what I love the most about this IBM Wheelrider 15 Series 2 is that it does everything I tell it to. Everything I tell it to, without fail. Even the mistakes I tell it to do, it, it obeys the mistakes uh, now, uh, thankfully, it has a, an autocorrect ribbon, which uh, makes my life a whole lot easier. But all the same, what I love about the typewriter is it just does what I tell it to do. Even crazy, ridiculous things like automatically centering text on a page and typing in bold and making micro adjustments in the spacing between lines. What makes this typewriter so faithfully obedient is the small little brain that lives inside of it. The little computer chip, the small bit of memory that remembers, that, that receives commands that I give and then unfailingly does what I have told it to do. Faith obeys the Word. God intends that we as Christians, genuine Christians who've been transformed by the, God, by, by the Word of God, that we do what He has told us to do in His Word. That we, like, this, like, an, like my IBM Wheelrider 15 Series 2, would unfailingly receive the commands that he gives and work them out without delay. Genuine Christians who are transformed by the Word of God do what it commands. As we see this idea fleshed out in the passage of Scripture before us, I would hope that we would leave today being ready, being prepared to look long into the Word of God, to take a long look into Scripture in order that we might obey it more readily and more consistently. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word together? James chapter 1. Verses 19 through 27. James, the apostle, brother to Jesus, our Lord and leader 
of the church in Jerusalem writes this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless." Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. May God bless this church as we look long into his word. You may be seated. Faith obeys the word. So how do we as Christians, as those who have expressed faith in Christ, how do we go about obeying it? James gives us some very helpful and I think practical instruction here. First of all, he tells us in verses 19 through 21 of our passage today that in order to obey the word, we must receive the word with humility. We must receive God's word in our hearts with humility. James 1.19 is, for all of its brevity, a deep source of wisdom for people like me who are often the opposite of this verse. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger quick, slow, slow. The commands come to us almost, almost like a dance, don't they? I, for one, could use these steps tattooed on the inside of my eyelids as a constant reminder to do just this. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. But the quick, slow, slow command, practical and helpful as it is for relationships and conversations with others, is not intended to be only that. It's not only intended to be good practical instruction for not being a jerk. Verse 19, you'll notice, is sandwiched between two very clear statements, not about relationships with people, but about our relationship to the Word of God. Look just one verse ahead in James chapter 1, verse 18, where James says, Of God's own will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Then he says, know this, my beloved brothers, be quick, slow, slow. And then verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. I don't think it's any coincidence and I don't think it's by accident that verse 19 comes sandwiched between these two very clear statements about our relationship to the word of God. You see, James 1.19 is about more than just how we should be good listeners to other people. It's about being a good listener, being an intent listener to the Word of God. It is the Word of God, it is the Bible, these scriptures that we hold in our laps that has brought us to life as we have heard the gospel and responded to it by turning from sin and trusting Jesus with our lives. And it's the Word of God that He has promised to implant in the hearts of all who have believed in Christ. You know, when James says in verse 21 that we should receive with meekness or humility the implanted word, he's not saying something new. In fact, he's reminding Christians to do something that God or or to be, be the recipients of something that God had long ago, even in Old Testament days, told his people he would do. In the prophet Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 33 through 34, listen to what God says to his people through the prophet. 
It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will implant my word within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Receive with meekness the implanted word. I will write my law on their hearts. The prophet Ezekiel relays a similar word to us from God. Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 11, verses 17 or 18 through 20, says this. When they come there, when, the, when the, uh, the people of Israel arrive to the place where God is taking them, they will remove from it all of its detestable things and all of its abominations. They're going to get rid of their idolatry. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. God himself saying uh, through Ezekiel, I'll put my spirit in them and enable them to obey my word. So Christian James is saying, be quick to hear the word of God. The word of God that brings spiritual life precisely because it brings spiritual life. Why should we listen to the word? Because it brings us to life. Likewise, be slow to speak back to the word. If this verse is good wisdom for how we relate to people, how much more and how much better for how we relate to God? Be slow to speak. Be slow to speak back to the Bible. Be slow to respond with your opinion about God's word until you have understood it rightly and clearly. Approach God's word prepared to understand it before arguing with it. And again, in the same way, be slow to become angry with Scripture. The truth is that as you read the word of God, your sinful sensibilities are going to be offended by its constant call to holiness and repentance. And if they aren't, you're reading it wrong. Repenting is not something, friends, that I am always very excited to do. And when God's word points out faults in me, If I'm not quick to listen and slow to speak, my initial response will be to try to rationalize my sin, to justify my wrongdoing. And the more God's word tells me to stop it and repent, the more my sinful heart just wants to be angry with what God has said. Here's the effect of that. Just as anger with another person leads me to act as the final judge, jury, and executioner over them, so also my anger towards God's word leads me to act as judge over it. As a sinful judge, my judgments are inherently evil and wicked. Left to my own devices, I will destroy the meaning and significance of God's word. So any anger that we might have toward God's word toward the Bible is not going to lead us closer to the God who brings us life, but rather farther and farther away. And the further that we get from the righteousness of God in his word, the closer we run with rebellion against him. Dear Christian, avoid this dangerous trap by being quick to hear from God's word, by being slow to talk back to it, and by being slow to be angry with it. 
And instead of being angered by how it convicts you, respond to God's word by repenting and taking off, like a, like a set of dirty, tattered clothes, taking off every wicked thought, every form of excess evil in your life. Replace sin with the word of God. Replace, the gospel, uh, replace sin with the gospel of Jesus Christ and with every holy command that comes from the lips of God. There is no better substitution to take place in your life than the substitution of your sin for Christ's righteousness on a daily basis. And this we do by receiving God's word with humility. Friend, this morning, if you're convicted by this, then determine to be shaped first by God's word in your life. Make it a point to make God's word the thing that shapes you. Not by trying to shape it to fit your expectations. Not by trying to, to, to uh, not, not by shaping your perspective on the Bible from influences of the world like social media, cable news, political leaders, secular psychology, social, so, social theory, so on and so forth. Determined to be shaped first by God's word. Amen. We have three young daughters in our house. They love things that squish and mold like slime and silly putty and Play-Doh. I think my wife has made 47 metric tons of salt dough for different preschool classes in our, ch- in our children's uh, short lifetime. But Play-Doh is fun. Why? It's fun to play with because you can, you can squish it into anything you want it to be. Play-Doh conforms to w- whatever forces are pressing upon it. Our hearts are like spiritual Play-Doh. They will conform to whatever is pressing upon them. What is pressing upon your moldable heart, Christian? What is shaping how you respond to the Word of God? What influences might you need to silence or discard altogether so that your heart would be shaped first and most importantly by the Scriptures, by the life-giving Word of God? Be quick to hear, slow to speak. Slow to be angry and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Receive the word of God with humility. Then secondly, James teaches us in verses 22 through 25 to obey the word continually. We receive the word with humility. We obey the word continually. Just as soon as James says to his uh, audience, his original readers, be quick to hear the word, he's just as sure to say, don't only hear the word, you have to do it too. Verse 22 is the theme verse of all of James's letter to the Christians around the Roman world. And it is the theme that he wants them to grasp. Uh, the theme is this, that people who genuinely listen to the word of God are genuinely changed by it. And they will live in obedience to it. Look at verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. To be in any way convinced that a Christian can merely be a student of Scripture without living in obedience to God who speaks to us by it is to be self-deceived. It is to have a wrong-headed understanding of who God is and what our response to His holiness and His uh, plan and, and source of redemption from sin is and to, to think something wrong-headed about God and salvation altogether. Yeah. James gives us a really funny example to illustrate the kind of person who does this. He says that the person who only hears the word but does not do it, the person who's a study, uh, uh, a strong student of the scriptures but is not living consistently with them, is like a, a man who stares at himself in a mirror, noting every nook and cranny of his face, every uh, 
poor and every hair follicle there only to walk away and be shocked by the stranger looking back at him from another mirror. It's as dramatic as contracting flesh-eating bacteria on your face and staring at the decay of your appearance in a mirror and then walking away doing nothing. Like the horror you just saw in the mirror is not indicative of reality. That is a person who hears the word only and does not do it. Looking at the word of God this way, reading it but not being changed by it, is very simply not Christian. Rather, James says, the person of genuine faith, the authentic Christian, the Christian not not only in word but also in deed and in status before God, will look into the Word of God, literally will stoop over to examine what is the perfect law of liberty and he will, she will persevere in it. James calls Scripture the law of liberty, the perfect law of liberty, not because we're made right with God by following the laws of the Old Testament, but rather because the Old Testament laws are meant to point us to Jesus, who fulfills the perfect righteousness, sinlessness of God without any error in order to make us free from sin, which made the law necessary in the first place. The reason that God gives His people a law at all is because of their sin, And to restrain them from sinning further. Jesus comes and lives a life without sin. Fulfilling the law perfectly as only God in flesh could do. And he does that in your place and in mine because we cannot. And Jesus takes that sinless life to the cross. Bearing our sins on his shoulders as he dies there. Receiving all of the just penalty for our sin upon himself. Reading the Word of God should lead us to see Christ for who He is. Reading the Word of God should lead us to see our sin for what it is. It is deadly. And and reading the Word of God should lead us to see our need for a rescuer and a restorer of our lives to God. Likewise, to read the Word of God rightly and to listen to it should lead us To see that God intends for those that he has freed from sin to live publicly in obedience to Christ. So James says, the one who is no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will persevere in continual obedience to the word. And for his perseverance and obedience, the Christian is blessed by God. Friend, the greatest blessing of God for our obedience comes with our first act of obedience to God's call to repent of sin and trust in Jesus. When you obey that call, when you say to God, God, I've been trying to fix my life, fill my life, orient my life in the right way all on my own, and it has been a disaster. When we we realize that in our sinful state we have nothing to offer to an infinite, holy, unchangeable God, we are in the best place in life we can be. Because at that point only are we able to receive the news, the, the word of truth that God has spoken through Christ His Son, that Jesus has taken our sins upon Himself. That he died on the cross to pay for them. That he was raised from the dead to give the promise of resurrection and new and eternal life to every person who obeys that first command. To repent of sin and place faith in Jesus. So friend, whether you have never trusted Christ with your life that way or you've been trusting Christ that way for several years of your life, in either case, be ready to say yes today to all that God's word calls you to. Be ready to say yes to all that God's word calls you to. 
We say often in our home as we're trying to raise our daughters to love the Lord and walk in faith that obedience is doing the right thing right away with the right attitude. Obedience is doing the right thing right away with the right attitude. Now, this kind of approach to obedience requires a readiness to do what is asked even before it is asked, doesn't it? Being ready to say yes to all that God's word calls us to calls us to do means having this heart attitude ever before we even open scripture. It is to say in the morning as we come to God's word, maybe in our own devotional time or later in the day, wherever it is that you find yourself in God's word, ever before opening it, doing so with the attitude that God, however you speak to me today, however your word instructs or encourages me, I'm going to do it. Here we go, right? Yet we are exceptional excuse makers. We can come up with all sorts of reasons why we ought not or don't need to obey the word. You don't need examples. All of yours are already flooding to your mind right now. But James here says there's no room for excuses and no excuse not to obey. So then, dear friend, hear the word with humility. But remember that hearing without ready and continual obedience is simply not an option for genuine Christians. Do not just receive the word with humility. Do not just learn about who God is and what his word requires of you. Then do it. Obey it continually. Finally, James teaches us that faith, which obeys the word of God, in verses 26 and 27, applies the word of God with integrity. It applies the word of God with integrity, with consistency in all that we do. So James says to us, hear the word, listen to it. And he also says, don't just listen to it, do it, obey it. But lastly, here in these two verses, he says, don't be a wordless talker, be a word-filled doer. Verse 26 ought to snatch our attention. It says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This is a sharp verse. It ought to cut a little. Here James considers the man who thinks he is religious, that he is a, uh, let's put it this way, a good Christian, and yet does not control his tongue. This man, like the one of verse 22 is self-deceived. He may declare faith or religion. He may say, I am a Christian. I'm a good, uh, church-going follower of Jesus. But his religion is one that is ultimately totally corrupt. It is rotten. It is decayed and lifeless. And here's why. James says to control or to bridle the tongue is to have complete dominance over it. Like a a bit in the mouth of a horse that controls its head left and right and and gives it commands. So also are we to control our tongue. But if a man, if a so-called Christian can not control his tongue this way, then it can be assumed that he does not have control over his heart as well. Follow this connection. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 16 through 20, uh, reveals to us this connection between the heart and the tongue. He said to his disciples and those other religious teachers who were, uh, who were around listening to him, he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is, and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The man who thinks he is religious, the man who calls himself a Christian, but spouts wicked words, angry accusations, tells crude jokes, curses and speaks slurs, who who lets loose careless insults, who is quick to speak and quick to become angry, this man's words betray the true state of his heart. And because his heart is defiled, all his religiosity accounts for nothing. He is a wordless talker. His worship is empty. On the other hand, James says, pure and undefiled religion is characterized not by being a wordless talker, but a word-filled doer. And what do word-filled doers do? I should have said that sentence differently. That's a bit of a tongue twister. What do word-filled doers do? Submit that to Dr. Seuss. Two things historically among God's people that word-filled doers do. First, they care for the vulnerable, most of all widows and orphans. James says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, religion that is not like that religion, that religiosity that comes from the man who has deceived himself about who he is, true, a pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You know, James is not commanding anything again that God has not already commanded of his people so long as they have been his people. In Exodus chapter 22, Exodus, the second book of the Bible, tells a story about how God takes a group of Hebrews that were in slavery in Egypt and frees them from slavery to make them a a nation for himself, a holy priesthood, a royal people. As he is giving instruction to Moses that he will pass along to the people of Israel, God says this in Exodus 22, verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God says, if you are going to be my people, you care for the most vulnerable among you. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 17 through 18, a reminder of the law to the second generation of Israelites that would eventually go in and take over the promised land of Canaan. God says this, Deuteronomy 24, verse 17, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or to take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Why do God's people, why do true Christians show their pure and undefiled religion by caring for the vulnerable? Because they, when they were at their most vulnerable place, were cared for by God. We, when we were dead in our sin, were brought to life by God, not of our own doing, not because we were particularly good looking, not because we were particularly moral, but because God out of his love is mercy for us, for sinners who had broken fellowship with him, reached down to say to your heart and to mine, come to life, trust in Christ, be changed by me. Why do true Christians care for the vulnerable? Because we know that we were once in a spiritually vulnerable place. And we cannot but treat them as God in Christ has treated us. Word-filled doers care for the vulnerable. But word-filled doers also pursue personal holiness. 
The second half of verse 27 says this. And true, pure and undefiled religion is to, before the God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That phrase, to keep oneself unstained of the world, means simply this. We don't look like the world around us. We look like Christ, who often runs upstream against the flow of culture or of our society. That, that we uh, must not come away from the world being more affected by it, but that we ought to, at the end of our lives, uh, affected the world more for Christ than the other way around. God has always intended for His people to be a holy people, to pursue personal holiness. Again, let's go back to Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. In Exodus chapter 19, the people of Israel are gathered around Mount Sinai. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Levites have gone about halfway up the mountain and have gathered there, and Moses has gone all the way to the top of the mountain to meet in the cloud uh, there with God. And in Exodus 19, verse 3, we read this, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And hear this, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a whole, a whole kingdom of people mediating relationship between God and the rest of the world. And you shall be a holy nation, a set-apart nation, a nation that does not look like the rest of the world and the peoples around you, but a nation that looks like me. Paul the Apostle in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, says this to the church at Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So whether it is God's people of Israel in the Old Testament or it is God's new covenant people which, which are made up of every person who has placed faith in Jesus Christ today, irrespective of who God's people are and how they are uh, identified in the world, their call is to be holy. Their call is to be set apart from the world. Their call, our call, is to have a character that looks more like God's with each passing day. See that as James gives instruction for what pure and undefiled religion is, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, that there is a both-and relationship here. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is caring for the vulnerable, is both caring for the vulnerable and pursuing personal holiness. There's no option to do one or the other. But rather, pure acts of obedient faith look like this. Having and striving for a holiness that looks like that of Christ, empowered and enabled in us by the Holy Spirit, and caring for those who are poor and vulnerable among us. We can make errors in either one of these two directions. We can make the error of thinking that pure and undefiled religion before God is to uh, visit the widow and orphan in their affliction. That my religion is in caring for vulnerable people. That's how I live my life with Christ. And so I'm going to care for them, and that, that's got all of my attention. And yet if that's the case, what's being neglected? Personal holiness. On the flip side, 
So that is to say that caring for people in need, feeding the homeless is more important than following Jesus with consistency in my own life. But on the flip side of that, you've got people who like to put up walls to the world and say, I don't want to be uh, affected. I don't want to be impacted or influenced by the world. So I'm going to shut the world out. I'm going to have no unchristian influence or relationship in my life. I'm going to hole up in my church and with my church family, and we're going to be in the word of God until Jesus comes back. What's the problem with that person who's pursuing personal holiness? And that in and of itself is not wrong. Well, the problem is they've left out the poor and the needy and the vulnerable and caring for those that God has called us to care for. So in a culture and a day and time in which you have many liberal theologians that are saying that the kingdom of God comes about as we care for those who are needy and, and give no, uh, uh, very little respect to pursuing personal holiness and being holy in the way that God is holy... Right? We have a call from God's word to, to, to say to them, no, caring for the vulnerable is important. Caring for those in, in need is, is crucial, but, but not to the expense of following Christ with all my heart. And on the flip side, for those who say, I just want to follow Jesus and I've got to get away from all the lost people in the world because they're just going to mess me up and they're just going to ruin my walk with Christ. I would say to that person, you're also being disobedient because God cared for you when you were vulnerable. God cared for you when you were without Christ, when the only thing you could hope to attain in the afterlife was, uh, was forever separation from God in a place called hell. God stepped in and said, here's my son Jesus who's going to pay for your sins for you. I've raised him from the dead so that you by faith in him might be brought to new life. Now go out and bring others to him. Go out and extend love and care to those that need it in his name. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. It is both caring for the vulnerable and needy and pursuing personal holiness in our own lives. So then, friend, put the gospel to work in your heart. Put it to work. Apply it with integrity and extend gospel-driven care to a broken world. If you believe that Jesus is Savior, good. Be changed in your heart day by day in your relationship with him, but do not stop at being so selfish. Extend that transformative care, the transformative message of the gospel through Christ-like care given in the name of Jesus to those who need it, beginning in our congregation and extending out. We have seen in the past some desire to build walls to the lost in order that they might protect the gospel. Churches that seclude themselves from the world in order to protect the gospel. When the gospel has, in your own life, broken down the wall of your heart to bring you to rest your life in the hands of Jesus, it also begins to break down the walls that we so often put up against those who are hopeless sinners as we once were. Genuine faith, friends, softens our hearts to care for the vulnerable at our own expense, expecting nothing in return. Genuine faith motivates us to speak of the hope of Jesus with those who do not know him. Genuine faith, sincere faith, faith that works, works itself out of us in friendships and gracious discussions with people who do not know Jesus. Because we trust that through our pursuit of holiness, coupled with our care for others, that the gospel that we believe and proclaim will be validated in compelling and convincing ways. Amen. I have a good friend who's a church planter in Santa Cruz, California. He's the pastor of the only Baptist church in Santa Cruz. 
There's not a very strong, hardly any evangelical influence there in the area. There are a couple of uh, evangelical non-denominational churches, but his is the only, or theirs is the only, uh, Baptist church in Santa Cruz presently. And they have kind of a, a motto for their church that I really love. The motto for their church is this, we're building bridges of trust that can bear the weight of truth. Building bridges of trust that can bear the weight of truth. Word-filled doers of what God has commanded are those who build bridges of trust with those who do not know Jesus so that in time those bridges of trust can bear the weight of the truth of the gospel in their lives. I think that's what it means to be a word-filled doer. To be one who has pure and undefiled religion before God, which is caring for the vulnerable, building bridges of trust, and pursuing personal holiness, right? Truth that, that imposes upon our lives. But as we care for those around us, whether they're hurting, broken, widows, orphans, or they're just lost people that we work with or work next to or live next to on our streets, as we endeavor to care for them in gospel-centered ways and ways that are defined by Christ, we're building bridges of trust that can bear the weight of the truth of the gospel. That they too, those, those very ones that we are caring for, are sinners like we are and in need of a Savior that we happen to know. Let us do this, friends, not out of guilt or shame or to make your pastor happy. Do this because this is what Christ has done for you. Amen. We're not word-filled doers. James does not call Christians to be these kinds of people because he thinks we're all terrible and he's wanting us to, to make us feel guilty about it. And he's calling us to this because it is exactly what Christ has done for us. When we, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that God, because of his great love for us, motivated by his mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Let us, out of love for Christ and love for others, extend life through the gospel as we break down walls between us and others to build bridges that will bear the weight of truth. We do this because this is what Christ has done for us. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, again, describes how it is in, in um, I think, a really helpful kind of word picture here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Paul says this, but now in Christ Jesus, let me say this first. Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Ephesus who are made up of both Jews and Gentiles, two ethnic groups that previously did not get along together. And Paul is expressing to them the mystery of the gospel, which is that Jesus is not just the Christ, he's not just the Messiah for the Jews, but for Gentiles too. That salvation for every man, woman, and child around the globe is through him. And so now he's clearing up, he's making clear for them just how this mystery is so. Ephesians 2.13, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those of you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. Faith obeys the word. Faith applies the gospel with integrity. 
Faith puts the gospel to work in in our own hearts and extends gospel-driven care to a broken world because this is precisely what Christ did for us. Breaking down, destroying the dividing wall of hostility of our sin against Him. Totally obliterating it. Bringing us to Himself as we place faith in Him and making us right with God. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus does to make us right with God. He doesn't put up walls to keep sinners out. He breaks down walls to bring sinners in. That is what he did on the cross. As his body was broken for us, as his blood was spilled for our sins, he's ramming through the wall of your sin to bring you to him. And as he brings us to him in faith, he then puts the gospel to work in our own hearts and he breaks down walls that divide us from others. He breaks down walls of racism. He breaks down walls of of ethnocentrism and, and, and classism and all the other isms, destroying them so that we might be made right to one another uh, in Christ and as we all come to him as Savior. So embrace the Jesus who broke down walls to bring you faith that you might obey his word to do the same with others. Friends, that is what we celebrate this morning. And remember, as we take the Lord's Supper together, that Christ stopped at nothing to bring bring broken sinners to himself. He laid it all on the line, becoming human, adding humanity to his divine nature, that he might live a life without sin, to die for us sinners, and be raised from the dead, so that everyone who places faith in him turning from their sin, would be made right with God, justified to God, and made ambassadors for Christ to a world that is hurting and broken. This meal that we take this morning, this little bit of bread and this cup together, symbolizes for those who take it that we have identified first with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that we've repented of sin, placed faith in Him, and are intending to walk in faithfulness to Christ every day of our lives. It says also for those of us who are all believers taking it together that we're identifying with one another, that we're not Christians on an island, but that God has saved us to be a holy community of faith, uh, uh, royal priesthood, uh, mediators of relationship to God, to the rest of the world as we point people to Jesus. So friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I ask you simply to refrain from taking this meal with us. It would say something about you that is not true. And uh, we want to encourage you to, be, uh, to have integrity today, to be consistent with what you believe and how you act. What you'll see if you're not yet a Christian, parents, if you have children who have not yet publicly professed faith in Christ, what you'll see is a description of, uh, is an illustration of people who have given their lives to Jesus and have committed to one another to do the work that God has given until Christ returns. In a moment, I'll pray, and as I do, our deacons will come to tend the table, and uh, after a moment, uh, I'll call you all forward to receive the elements and then return to your seats, and we'll take them all together. As you come forward, if you're sitting in these center sections, use the center aisle. Just move to the center aisle. Come forward this way. If you're sitting on either of the side sections, use the aisle along the wall to come forward, and then everyone use the other aisles that aren't being used to return to your seats, and that'll make sure that we don't uh, trip over one another and we can get everyone through uh, uh, quickly. After I pray, I'll ask if there's anyone who's not comfortably able uh, or physically able to come forward and receive the elements. And at that time, our deacons will be more than happy to serve you where you are, okay? So just raise your hand high and we'll serve you. And then the rest of us will come and take the elements together. As we're receiving our elements this morning, I'm going to be seated just here at the front.
to speak with you if you have any sort of decision to make for Jesus today. If you know that you are not right with Christ today, that your faith is not in him, but you want it to be today, come speak with me. Let me pray with you, talk with you about how you can have assurance that you are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Maybe you have sins that you need to repent or confess of and repent for before receiving this meal. You can remain seated where you are and just pray that prayer of confession and repentance before coming to receive the elements. But let us do it with a right heart and with eyes and minds and hearts that are set on Jesus, our Savior, who broke down the wall of hostility to bring us to God that we might be word-filled doers. Let's pray.